Hello, and once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Neflin. We've really not amped up the spooky at all for our monster bracket, and I feel like we're, we're missing out on that opportunity. To be fair, most of the films that we've been talking about have not been super spooky. Yeah, that's true. I mean, of the films we've watched, what, what's the spookiest, would you say? Sixth Sense? Probably The Sixth Sense. Exorcist has spooky bits, but I think it is not a sustained spooky. Yeah, it has pockets of it, whereas I think The Sixth Sense is more sustained. And then Wolf was trying to do that, but it was just... 290s? Yeah. Yeah. Not even 290s. It definitely felt like an 80s film. That's true. But it didn't have that like weird 80s charm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we're only going to be talking about one of the films we've brought up so far. This is actually the final of our monster bracket. This week we will be discussing The Shape of Water as well as The Sixth Sense. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that both of the films that ended up in our final are taking a look at the monsters, in this case, the Gill Man and the Ghost, and giving us a much more thoughtful perspective on their existence and identities. There's a quote from one of the DVD extras in the making of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, where Julie Adams, who played Kay, the Starlight character, talks about why she enjoyed making monster movies, and she says, Basically, we're all storytellers or weavers of dreams. We have monsters in dreams and so on, and maybe it's a way of making friends with those monsters, <laughs> these horror pictures, and I'm delighted that people still enjoy this picture. Which I think is a really sweet, concise way of talking about why horror stories can be actually really useful. Mm-hmm. Because both of these are less about the horror of the monster and more about the horror of being the monster, which I think is really interesting. I think is possible what makes them so good is because they, by their very nature, have to have some empathy to them. They have to have some element of care and depth, which means the characters have to have care and depth by default. It's also exploring things like isolation, which is something that is increasingly common in modern society. Yeah, I think Shape of Water is especially big for that. It's so impressive how much the characters feel like they're just pushed to the margins of things. Like, almost no one is coming from any kind of place of power at all in that movie. Mm-hmm. The closest we have outside the antagonist is probably Hofstadler. Yeah, and even he is a spy who's beholden to all these powerful shadowy forces and doesn't really have much of a say in things. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, in The Sixth Sense, we've kind of got some of that. I mean... Bruce Willis ostensibly has institutional power as, you know, someone who's a respected scientist, but Cole and his mom are both struggling to make it. They're dealing with economic troubles, societal and psychological troubles. Yeah. But we also never really see Malcolm accessing his privilege and power, mostly because he's a ghost and doesn't have access to it anymore. The closest he has is access to all of his previous work while alive which he was able to do because of his power and we also see the prestige he's gained at the beginning of the film yeah and i think him being dead makes it work really well and it's a way that he and cole kind of share a connection they they both have access to the emotional landscapes of other people from the past but they have to find ways to navigate that and make it useful Mm -hmm. this is more granular equivalent stuff but once the sixth sense proper gets going and we see Malcolm looking at Cole across the street. Malcolm has this case file on Cole. Where did he get that? How does he have that? It could very well be that that was one of the cases that he was going to start prior to his untimely death. I mean, he was very prominent in child psychology in the city, so it makes sense that Cole being the special case that he was 
the seer sought him out. Sure. Maybe contacted by a teacher or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was dead. Uh, that just kind of lapsed and they just couldn't get anybody else at the time. Mm-hmm. Another option I think might be kind of interesting, and there's no, I have no evidence for this. It's just a kind of a fun idea. Uh, is that was Vincent's case file. Mm. This time through, I was noticing how much Cole and Vincent, uh, listeners at home, if you can't remember, Vincent is the guy who starts all this trouble by showing up in Malcolm's house. Uh, we talked about him quite a bit in our previous episode on The Sixth Sense. Yeah. Um, I was noticing how much the film is setting Cole up to become Vincent down the line if things don't go differently for him. Oh yeah, that's one of the reasons that Malcolm is so attached to this case to begin with is because he sees a lot of the same problems in Cole that he had with Vincent and he wasn't able to help Vincent and Vincent was severely damaged because he wasn't able to give help. So this is kind of Malcolm trying to make up as for his past mistakes and trying to prevent anyone from hurting the way Vincent did. Yeah. Assuming that those were the notes on Vincent and now he's doing a hard reset because he's a ghost and his ability to perceive the world is very distorted. Adds a layer of complexity there. But mm. I think your answer that this was going to be his next job in life, but he just never got there because he was dead and this is the notes he had, that probably is more logical. Mm-hmm. It, like, it also ties into the whole concept of unfinished business for ghosts, which is very common trope. He is literally trying to close the books on this one. With that chunk of world building out of the way, um, where do we want to go? This is our finale, so how are we going to compare these films? How are we going to decide which is strong? Because they're both really good. Yeah. Uh, we can do the compare-contrasty thing. We can... Let's try compare-contrasty. I think it's going to be kind of hard because these are very different films in terms of the structure, the character structure, etc. Oh, yeah. Very different films. Compare-contrasty thing is hard with story and character structure and all that jazz. We can probably talk about you know the universal things like cinematography, music. Why don't we go ahead and start with the color palettes? Because the films have very different color palettes. Well, awkward. So we've talked before about how Del Toro wanted The Shape of Water to be a black and white movie, but he was talked out of it. So he went with this really cool color palette. Out of curiosity, this time when I watched it, I put in some filters to make it be black and white. So I can't talk about the color palette as easily. I can only talk about the lighting and all that jazz. But... We can have that conversation. I mean, with The Shape of Water, you have like lots of blues and greens and some muted yellows. Red being used to kind of highlight things. But overall, it's a it's a not terribly saturated color palette for the most part. The most saturated colors you kind of get are those blues and the occasional reds. Or bursts of color like with the theater below Eliza and Giles. Yeah. Then with The Sixth Sense... Most of the color palette is very muted. You've got a lot of like grays and browns. Honestly, not a lot of color throughout the film. Probably the most colorful scenes are the birthday party and the school play. Yeah, although it means that when we do it color, it tends to be more impactful. The bumps of red, especially that scene at the funeral for the little girl who Cole helps move on. You get the lady who did the thing in you know, just stark red, and I think the intensity of the red dress would not work if the rest of the film had a brighter color palette. Oh yeah, it definitely wouldn't. It, it, like, it specifically denotes been caught red-handed. Yeah, it's not subtle, but I'm okay with it. While The Sixth Sense isn't like gorgeous to look at for most of the film, it still is not unpleasant. It's not the problem I have with, say, Rocky or Slapshot. And, like, part of the reason they went with like the muted color palette is just because of the subject matter you're dealing with mental illness, psychology, like Cole is a very disturbed child. Having lots of bright stuff going on doesn't seem very appropriate. Like you want a more somber tone and the film sets that pretty well. I think also the um, somewhat drabness makes it feel more real because in film drab equals real, colorful equals 
phantasmagorical. Yeah. And I think that makes the fact that this is all the experience of a ghost more shocking because it means that this ghost is still in the real world, as it were. Yeah. Whereas Shape of Water, it also has a very intentional color palette, but I want to talk about what it's like watching it in grayscale because it's actually really interesting. Go for it. It looks gorgeous. Like, I don't want to say, like, better than it otherwise would have been. Because, I mean, it's very subjective. That's It removes an aspect of the color storytelling that I think is important to the thing. And also, you can't really tell if the Gilman is glowing as much. You lose that aspect of the magical bit. So it's a little unclear what's happening. But apart from that, a lot of the lighting is very stark. The faces still read. And you also notice that a lot of the background characters are almost always in white or light colors, whereas... Most of the protagonists are never in light colors. No one is ever wearing light, if except for, for Strickland, who kind of goes back and forth. I don't want to make of that. But the way that everyone else is wearing this kind of black drabness fits into this theatricality. Because in, you know, in the theater, if you're wearing black, it means you're invisible. And it means that the scene when Eliza has her musical dream sequence, and then she's suddenly, suddenly wearing white for the only time in the film that she's ever wearing bright colors, it makes that scene even more abstracted from reality. And it, I think that drives home the idea that so this isn't really a happy story. Eliza's fantasy is just that. That's never going to happen. That was never going to be real for her. Mm-hmm. Like She wants this elegant, glamorous, Broadway life, but she ends up in a canal. And maybe living happily ever after. Giles can only speculate. If I told you about her, what would I say? That they lived happily ever after? I believe they did. That they were in love? That they remained in love? I'm sure that's true. The choice to believe that a thing has a happy ending is an important psychological tool. It's also a theme that Del Toro goes into a lot. He tends to end his films on hopeful notes as much as he can. Like, there are some notable exceptions, like Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> and even Pan's Labyrinth is a little ambiguous. I mean, spoilers for Pan's Labyrinth, but it's a little unclear if the protagonist is dead at the end of the film or if she's actually escaped the scary world of Spain to be in the beautiful fairy courts well the evidently kind of scary fairies like they're not always happy but it's at least pretty there yeah we're not talking like disney fairies we're talking like folklore fairies yeah but it is still this very ambiguous ending about what's happening with that and i i like that i like that del toro doesn't believe in easy answers unlike the sixth sense it wraps things up pretty well by the end yeah m night Shyamalan's. i don't want to say like easy answers he always wants a very conclusive ending that's kind of goes with the whole obscuring information from the audience and then revealing it later in a, a big way. I, I hesitate to use the word twist for all of his oeuvre because it doesn't always apply as much as people say it does. But I do think that M. Night definitely has a penchant for sort of bittersweet endings. They're very conclusive, but there's some sadness that always comes with whatever conclusion that the protagonists get. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, Del Toro is more of a fan of kind of the opposite, like optimistic ambiguity. Yes. While I think both are good narrative tools, I tend to like things that are wrapped up. I think that there are like pros and cons to stories that feel they must be conclusive, but I tend to like things that are more wrapped up. That gives a point to, to the sixth sense for, for me just on that spectrum. Mm-hmm. While we're talking about conclusive endings, and whatnot, I want to talk about how concrete the antagonists are because the films have very different takes on that in the shape of water we have very clear antagonists mostly and in the sixth sense it's almost no antagonist film there's no villain film yeah there are people who cause obstacles for cole and malcolm but it's 
more so them kind of getting over their internal struggles. Yeah, there's no like big bad evil guy for that one. A lot of the antagonistic force is just life. They're <clears throat> fractured psyches. However, neither film is any less triumphant than the other one. The protagonists overcome their obstacles, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I like that, well, The Shape of Water does have Strickland as this very, very obvious uh, villain. There's also this kind of broad sense of feeling powerless or feeling incapable, feeling helpless. That all, all Feeling the, marginalized. Feeling marginalized, yeah. That all the characters are dealing with and one of overcoming. Mm-hmm. So, And I like that it's, it's not just a flat defeat the villain and then all the problems go away thing. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, that you also have these kind of shadowy Russian agents who are, you know, they get away with stuff scot-free. They don't really do anything noticeably bad in the film. But, like, you have these two governments mm-hmm. that are both broadly not great, TM, don't have any comeuppance or anything. That's I still mean, a problem. I mean, all the Russian spies that we get in the film are dead by the end of it. Doesn't Hostetler's handler kind of... No, I'm pretty sure Strickland kills both of them. Okay. I know he kills at least one. He may not kill the other. I don't quite remember. Sure. That scene, I always get caught up on how Hofstetler is shot because he has a hole through his mouth specifically so Strickland can like hook his finger in there and pull him like a fish hook. And I just love the symbolism of that. Mm-hmm. I love how gross and visceral it is because Del Toro does love his gross viscerality about the mouth stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do love Del Toro's occasional fascination with grossness and gore. Peter Jackson kind of has something similar. You can definitely see it in his older work, like Dead Alive. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's some sort of thematic thing happening with being shot in the mouth and how like Eliza can't talk and I think Zelda says to her husband, Shut up, Brewster. You shut up! In years you don't talk. Now you can't shut your mouth. Damn you, Brewster. And all that jazz. I feel like there's something going on there, but I can't quite figure out what. I definitely think that there is this undercurrent of the film of like associating marginal with being voiceless and either having your speech suppressed by others or specifically suppressing itself so you can fit in better and draw less attention to yourself and less animosity towards yourself because you are marginalized. Oh, for sure. I think it definitely fits into this general thematic undercurrent of the film. I just didn't know if there was like more to that scene or if it was just, you know part of that or is it making that more clear for the audience mm-hmm. and speaking of marginalization and voicelessness and disability stuff i got to it last week but this week i noticed i seen a push to replace using blind spot with dead angle because that's like a, a french thing which sure fair enough cool idea but i like that in this particular movie the existence of a, a blind spot in the cameras uh, allows eliza to begin to formulate and execute her plan to save the amphibian man and it's an- another way in which there is a slight and specific power in disability i think it's an interesting thing that like plays into the politics i'm just not entirely sure what all it's saying but i think it's definitely part of the undercurrent in the way that the like fish hook mouth thing is yeah there are subtle symbolic reinforcements of its main theme that may not have anything specific to say on their own but when piled together with everything else going on it's just a kind of reinforcement yeah So I want to take a tangent since we're talking about Shape of Water and we've been talking about antagonists in it. I want to talk about Strickland. (sighs) I love the way that Strickland is constructed. He is a great character. He is scum and I hate his guts. He's very bad. There's so much 
effort put into just show the subtleties and nuances of how awful he is. There's some really interesting writing and editing going on with Strickland's sex scene with his wife. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's gross, but it's like some of the way that's cut. And then some of the way that that comes back later, like there's this interesting dichotomy between Strickland liking screams when he's torturing the amphibian man, but he hates the vocalizations and screams that his wife makes during sex. I kind of read that into like fetishizing Eliza and her powerlessness and kind of projecting that into his wife. And it's gross and weird. Well... I can see that later on, but we don't have him coming on to Eliza before the sex scene. So it like I didn't quite read it that way. I read it more as the exclamations of pleasure that his wife is giving off don't empower him the way the screams of pain that the amphibian man do. Mm, I see that, yeah. He doesn't have absolute power over. And that's one of the ways that he finds Eliza attractive is that because she's silent, he would have complete power over her in you know, that specific way. Or so he assumes, at least. Yes, yeah. exactly. I also really love how the Cadillac is just a this huge metaphor for Strickland's bruised ego. Oh, for sure. It's not subtle at all, and it's, I love that. Yeah, it's not subtle at all, but it, it's so well done because it gets damaged right as they are making their escape. And it's we just see like bits of bits of it later on and he's having problems with i think taillight or the one of the mirrors falling off which then relates back to his fingers that are rotting off yep like there's just so many interconnected pieces and you didn't need all of them but they fit together so nicely and so interestingly speaking of not needing all of them I agree that Strickland is very well constructed. I think the film is having a really good time unpacking and thoroughly building this shitty, awful man. I wish there wasn't so much of that. You can lose a good 10 to 15 minutes of Strickland stuff, and I enjoy the film more. Cause it, I feel like a lot of times it's just the film grinding to a halt to show you how bad Strickland is. And I I think this movie, which I've seen it so many times now in the last month or two, but I just get bored during those scenes. I got up to like check on the oven. I got up to like, make some tea at one point. I was like, I don't care. I don't... I don't need this anymore. I say that's entirely valid. I definitely think that is more so a a symptom of repeat viewings in a short time frame. Yeah, for sure. Films aren't really meant to be watched on loop. That's not really what they're designed for. Um, Well... In general. Not anymore, anyway. Originally, when you went to the films, there wasn't a, like, showtime. They just had the films playing on loop, and there was, like, newsreels or, like, short cartoons and front of them and as soon as the film ended it would just start back up again so you would just pay for a ticket go to the theater that was showing the thing you wanted to watch and you would come in like the middle of it and you just wait until you like oh i've seen this scene before i watched the whole movie and then leave wow what a weird way to watch things i mean it also meant that you just you know keep it going 24 hours sure that makes sense i suppose yeah but anyway Mm -hmm. This film was not designed to be watched on a loop. No, it was not. Definitely not. So I can't really fault the film too much for that, but definitely in terms of just what I would rather watch again. It'll be a little while before I'm diving back into The Shape of Water. Honestly, I think the only film that we've watched for this bracket that was designed to be watched that way is The Mummy 32. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. I I thought you were going to say Rocky Horror. I think there's definitely people who do that. I definitely think that there are people who do that, and... 
to be fair, Rocky Horror is riffing off of films that were made to be watched that way. Mm-hmm. We've kind of been mm-hmm. in Shape of Water for a while. Why don't we shift gears over to The Sixth Sense for a little bit? Uh, okay. Can you talk about how much Anna and that other guy who is like competing with Bruce Willis for her affections, sort of, uh, are like a really great couple? Yeah, I think that's really solid. And there's definitely this tension between the audience seeing Anna being happy with him, but the distance between her and Malcolm. And there's this tension like, well, we like Malcolm. He's this child psychologist. He's trying to help Cole. He's our protagonist and our point of view character. So we should be on his side. But there's also this really great guy who seems to make Anna happy and Malcolm doesn't seem to be doing so. Yeah. Uh, And then we don't realize there's not really any tension until the end of the film. I also really like how that all plays into Malcolm's baggage and the stuff that he has to get over. Because I think watching through the film without that, it would be much more difficult to understand that Malcolm is also needing to work on baggage and Cole is in certain ways helping him with that. Right. I think it also kind of adds a a bit of a ticking clock to things because you get the sense that because we've seen films before that once Malcolm helps Cole work through stuff, then he will be able to fix his relationship with his wife. Right. That's what we're assuming because we don't know the twist yet. And so as Anna and this other guy get closer and closer, you you kind of get the sense that if Malcolm doesn't help Cole soon, that relationship will fall apart and then Malcolm will probably fall apart because he loves his wife a great deal. Also, I like those scenes because of some of the similarities we see with Anna there and Anna in the first few minutes of the film before uh, Vincent shows up. Honestly, there's some really great filmmaking there. Like when they're down by the fireplace and they're admiring the plaque, rather than the camera staying on them the entire time, there's a point where the camera just looks at the plaque and stays there. But because of the reflective nature of the inscription, we can see their faces and them talking about how Malcolm was awarded it. His continuing efforts to improve the quality of life for countless children and their families, the city of Philadelphia proudly bestows upon its son, Dr. Malcolm Crow, that's you, the merest citation for professional excellence. They called you their son. Like, I really love that framing. Yeah. Although, I think that it's still a doofy scene there. Like, they're kind of establishing Malcolm's role. And I, the dialogue's a little clunky, but it's fine. It is, but it feels clunky in a way that is, I think, realistic for a couple that's like, oh, you've been working so hard and you, like, we, you finally have this and there's this weight off of their shoulders and they're also a little drunk. Yeah. I will definitely say that it is definitely a hey, we need to explain everything to the audience sort of deal, but it's a movie you're just going to run into that occasionally. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a bit where Cole just, you know, lays out the ghost rules, like he's some sort of Indian doctor with cancer or something. To be fair, he doesn't know way that I would expect a child to. Oh, sure. That's something I like about Cole, but he oscillates really rapidly between creepy child who knows things that children shouldn't know yet to, like, just being this very innocent kid. He'll have moments of stark innocence that contrast really well with his moments of not innocence. And that, I think, makes him more interesting than if he was just constant, like, I see murder, I see death, I draw people being hanged, that kind of stuff. Yeah, there are two two scenes that I think work really great for that dichotomy. We've got the... I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. 
this scares me. This is what's going on and I need help. Please help me, Malcolm. And we also get the scene where Cole's at school and he is actually doing something really interesting. He is fighting back against his teacher's interpretation of history uh, because he has seen the hanged individuals in the school and it's like... They used to hang people here. Uh, Cole, this, this building was a legal courthouse. That's a thing that, not necessarily the fighting back part, but the whole whitewashing of history happens all the time in school. It's also a very kid-like thing <clears throat> to have some knowledge and be very proud about knowing something that the teacher doesn't and kind of push back against that. Like yeah. that, that feels very real and it's in a kind of like yeah. bratty way that maybe isn't a thing that the teachers will enjoy, but it feels very real. And then that tension between the two devolves into Cole revealing this childhood stutter that the teacher had and had, you know, worked through, like, speech therapy-wise. How did you- Stop looking at me! Who have you been speaking to? Stuttering Stanley! Stuttering Stanley! And then he begins to stutter, and he just- freaks out on Cole and loses his temper and calls him a freak. Up, you freak! I think those two scenes perfectly encapsulate the full spectrum of where Cole oscillates in the film. Another scene that I think should be thrown in there just to help out is the scene where Cole and Malcolm are walking back and talking about Cole walking to school with that one bully and Cole chastises Malcolm for saying the S-word. You said the S-word. Yeah, I know. Sorry. It's such a, such a sweet, cute little scene, um, mm. but that Cole has this as a rule that he's probably been told several times, don't say this, tracks really well with stuff, and he's just surprised when an adult said that in front of him is very fun to me. Yeah. Although it's a little weird because like we see some of the words he's scrawled in his notebooks and stuff from, I'm sure, overhearing ghosts and whatnot, and uh, using a lot spicier language than Malcolm did there. For sure, but I think you can tell like with the scene where Cole talks about having drawn someone who was stabbed and then being sent to the principal's office and now he draws rainbows. They don't have meetings about rainbows. No. I guess they don't. You get this sense that Cole's probably been chastised a lot for some of the stuff he tries to process, you know, like by automatic mm. writing or drawing or whatever. Mm. And so I think this is probably the first time he's mm. seeing someone who's an adult not treating swearing as something like shameful or unacceptable. Mm. I think that's kind of a very new thing for him, which is an understandable thing. Speaking of scenes that give us a good idea of Cole. There's also a scene in Shape of Water that gives a good idea of what Eliza is like. There's this montage towards the beginning of the film that, so we kind of follow Eliza through that first day and we see everything she does. And then after that, we just see snippets of her redoing all those same actions that we saw. And it's a really great shorthand for showing us how stuck in a routine that she is the way that they have all these actions and they're very distinctive and the way they're cut reinforces before everything happens, Eliza's kind of stuck in a rut and she's not really going anywhere with her life. She's kind of stuck in this dead end job. You know, she's living in this apartment. She only has a small number of friends. She doesn't really 
have a lo- whole lot outside of work to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, she has basically two friends, one of whom she knows from work and one of whom is her neighbor. She doesn't really go out or do things. Mm-hmm. What she does is because Giles is dragging her out to be his wingman, his failed disastrous wingman. Oh, I want to talk about God and shape of water. There we go. <laughs> okay. So when Eliza is trying to convince Giles to help her with the caper, one of her lines is, everything I am brought me here to help him, kind of implying that this is not just happenstance, but she believes on some level this is a fate that she's here. And Giles mm-hmm. is like, no, no, I don't want to do the thing. I'm going to walk away. And then he's rebuffed in two specific ways. He's rebuffed career-wise. It's, uh, it's not a good time. Maybe later. Oh, well, sure. No problem. What would be a good time for you, Bernie? Um, and then uh, he's rebuffed at the pie shop when the guy's like, Yeah, I'll come back now. You hear? You don't need to talk to them like that. You should go too. And don't come back. This is a family restaurant. And listen, you're back to back. There's nothing to intercut them. There's no Strickland or Eliza in the middle. So it feels like this is just a pair of scenes to show us how Giles is drag kicking and screaming back into the plot. And that makes me feel like there is some guiding force there that kind of subtly reinforces Eliza's assertion that, that fate has brought them to where they are. If either of those scenes had gone well for Giles, he probably would not have helped her. And so it's almost like God was actively keeping him from getting a job and cockblocking him to make sure he saves the fish man. But there's another God thing to talk about. So mm. I looked up the, the poem at the end that Giles reads. Unable to perceive the shape of you, I find you all around me. Your presence fills my eyes with your love. It humbles my heart, for you are everywhere. And I'm like, huh, that's an odd poem. What's that about? Apparently, in between filming, Del Toro would just go to a bookstore around the corner that he liked, and he found a book of Islamic poetry that he thought was nice. I mean, that that's so on brand. <laughs> Very on brand. I might be pronouncing this wrong, but this is uh, by H- Hakim Sanai. But this, these aren't like love letters between people. This is like a love letter to Allah, which I think finally helps me reconcile why like religion is brought up in this movie and doesn't really go anywhere. Now I'm feeling like it is. There's some aspect of divinity all throughout this film, and the divinity is about pushing back against oppressors, which is a really cool idea. I'm here for that. That sounds great. What a good way to think about God. Yeah. I think it, it's just a little weird because all of the textual bringing up of God is like very Christian-centric, and, which makes sense. Most of it being brought up is by Strickland. A lot of the other stuff is A, more subtle, and B, is coming from traditions that don't get as much screen time in film, and so there's not as much dedicated film language to talking about them. But there's a bit where Strickland asked Zelda, you know, what do you think God looks like? And she's like, I wouldn't know, sir. I don't know what it looks like. It's kind of clear that she's being humble about that. I talked about this before, how much I like that scene. It's almost like the film is trying to, like, conceive of what God should look like. And it's like saying, this is what God should look like. This film. While I agree that a lot of the religious stuff is coming from Strickland, who has this very, like, shitty, toxic understanding, I think it's also about deconstructing that idea and not letting that be the only way things can be. I mean, almost all of Guild Tours films are about deconstructing shitty social mores and traditions. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of sad that Del Toro hasn't, to my knowledge, done a like very religion-heavy movie. I think that would be very fun. I'm not sure what that would look like. It's kind of an undercurrent in a lot of things. Like We get the scenes in Pan's Labyrinth that deal with religion pretty heavily. There's even the kaiju cult in Pacific Rim. Hellboy 
<laughs> okay, okay. Salt gathered from the tears of a thousand angels, restraining the essence of Samael, the hellhound. Religion is there, but it's not trying to make any big points beyond fire, bad, tree, pretty. <laughs> That's fair. Del Toro likes to insert religious symbolism and some religious themes in his work, but it, there's never been something where he's done a deep dive. This is specifically what this film is about. Yeah. Whereas Shyamalan does get into religious stuff sometimes. Like The Sixth Sense has a priest for a character. You get Devil, which has some thoughts about God and the Devil and all that jazz. I mean, you could take a look at his later works. There's Signs. The main character, played by, fortunately, Mel Gibson, is a preacher. You've got The Happening, where it feels like the apocalypse is happening. Right. And so it's interesting to me that in The Sixth Sense, there is no explicit like afterlife or cosmic structure beyond ghosts existing. Cole has his religious stuff. He, like, steals stuff from the church. But there isn't any sense that any of that, like, works, per se, or has any particular inherent power beyond what it gives to it. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that, because one of the places that Cole always goes to to play is the church. I'm thinking that the church is acting as a sanctuary, both in the traditional sense of sanctuary as a church, because he's isolated and marginalized, but... Also, from all of the ghosts and terrible things that he has to deal with because of his abilities, it feels like that is one of the few places where things are calm for him. And I think that's one of the reasons that he is more willing to deal with Malcolm than a lot of the other ghosts that he encounters is because Malcolm is able to meet him in the church. So I'm going to make up a whole point about how the Sixth Sense is very... A religious, but now you completely 180 me, so I got nothing. Um, ha <laughs> Curses have been foiled. Once again, subtle Christian imagery has foiled me. Yeah, it's one of the things you get from growing up Catholic. <laughs> That's fair. I was also going to talk about how, like, I like that the film ends with fading to white, and then we there's not, like, Malcolm, like, walking some pearly gates. Oh, whatever, God, that would be so terrible. That'd be I'm very like, bad. I'm it, glad that we did not go there. Yeah. But you're right about the church. I think that makes sense. I also think that's why he steals things from the church because he's trying to get whatever energy that church has into his like little playhouse so that can be a sanctuary for him in his home. Yeah. Wow. I space on all of that. I got nothing. That's why there's two of us on this podcast. All right. We've been talking for a while. I think it's probably time to start transitioning to our final vote. So let's do Monster Movie Magic. Oh, wow. Both of these have good makeup. Yeah. One to a larger extent than the other. The Sixth Sense's makeup is less ostentatious, I guess, is what I want to say. I think ostentatious is a good word. They use pretty subtle effects for most of the ghosts and all that stuff. But The Shape of Water, you have Doug Jones in his half CGI, half prosthetic bodysuit. The um, ghost makeup on Bruce Willis is really subtle. You can't tell from most of the film that he's a ghost. Like... I mean, I was thinking more of, like, the little girl that he helps and, um... The kid with the, who ate his own gun or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I might gently give this over to The Shape of Water. Sixth Sense has a lot of really good stuff, but I think Shape of Water is, is just a little bit more... Visually impressive? Visually impressive, yes, but I also think Shape of Water, we're interacting with it more, whereas, I mean, by the very nature of ghosts, there's less of them looking spooky. Like, I don't even want to fault the sixth sense because I think if we had more of that spectacle, that theatricality that it would take away from the film. 
like I like how down to earth the film is. I think that's why it works. Yeah, they even cut a scene where Cole sees like a nightmarish sequence of a street full of violence when he's at one point just in a area that had some of the bad stuff happening but apparently it was just too scary for the films so that took it out and i'm glad i think it wouldn't have worked i don't think we need that we already kind of get a sense of how much of the bad stuff has affected cole without really seeing it we get enough glimpses to know what sort of horrible mindscape that cole inhabits most of the time and we also see that in his actions like his fear of going to the bathroom in the middle of the night mm-hmm. i definitely think as far as like visuals Shape of Water definitely wins out, but that's not something that The Sixth Sense was trying to do, and I'm glad that it didn't. Right. It's a tad unfair. It's sort of like saying which has better action scenes, John Wick or That Thing You Do. As far as the evolution of the monsters in cinema, we're in a weird spot because really we haven't had a lot of Gilman. It's pretty much been Creature from the Black Lagoon and its sequels, and then this. There's that one episode of Buffy. (laughs) like after we were talking about it i'm like oh yeah that one not very good one where all the swimmers are also gill people i mean a a lot of shows like that like there's a kappa in lost girl that kind of acts in a similar way to the gill man i'm sure that at some point the supernatural boys have fought something in the water (laughs) whereas on the other hand ghosts have had a very vibrant history in film Mm -hmm. there's so much we cannot catalog at all. We couldn't even get into all the major ones, let alone the small things. We'd have to list like a dozen different reimaginings and reinterpretations of A Christmas Carol. <laughs> That's true. Is The Sixth Sense better than Muppet <laughs> Christmas Carol? No, it's not. Nothing is. Um... <laughs> but we've watched The Uninvited and we have seen kind of the first scary interpretation of ghosts is like the supernatural force and we've seen that evolve into things like poltergeist and ghost and tons of gory slasher films and i think the sixth sense because of the twist and because of how it's structured it does something incredibly interesting it really examines the idea of being a ghost and you don't realize it till the end of the film. I think you bring up slashes is an important part because a lot of the times when Cole is seeing these ghosts, they look like something you might get as the antagonist in a slasher movie. I'm especially thinking of um, the kid whose like, skull is missing. That looks like some sort of monster movie gore makeup from the 80s. But having this serious borderline Oscar Beatty kind of take on the slasher genre is fun and interesting and i think looking at it through that lens complicates understanding of the film you're bringing up some of the ghosts similarities to other things the girl that cole helps at the end who like is you know vomiting and whatnot there's definitely some similarities between her and the girl from the ring oh yeah for sure and also just a little bit of reagan with the bed the vomit all that jazz Mm -hmm. so we have a lot of this history that m night is bringing into the sixth sense and incorporated in in smaller ways and i definitely think that the sixth sense has more to say on ghosts than the shape of water has to say on amphibian men yeah i think that's definitely true so in that aspect it's a more complex monster movie and we are talking about these as monster movies not just movies so so I, I think as far as like evolution, I'm going to give that fight to The Sixth Sense. Mm-hmm. It's not that the, the Shape of Water isn't saying anything interesting. It's just, the Sixth Sense is just saying a bit more. In the same way that Shape of Water was just doing more with makeup. 
So we're at a tie for Monster Movie Magic. I think it's interesting that in the final, we're talking about two films from directors who have a very distinctive style, but I don't think judging the films based on the director is fair. No. Leaving it at a tie is fine. It's also appropriate because going into the episode, I had no idea what I was voting for to finish things off. I kind of expected this conversation to lead me to a conclusion. And has it? It has. Okay. I am going to put forward that The Sixth Sense should be the winner of our bracket. Yeah, that's kind of where I was. Going in, I like, these are both very good films, but I was just tired of Strickland. And that was just the one thing. It was like if they both got equal scores and Strickland just dropped it down by like one. Like, that's really my only thing. Like, I think they're both very strong, very fun, very engaging. And yeah. both have a lot to say. Both of these films are fantastic. They're great. Honestly, don't they don't even make a bad double feature. No, yeah. Although there is this weirdness where in The Shape of Water, you have all of these individuals who are different than the quote-unquote norm of society are viewed as monstrous, but you have this completely monstrous personality of Strickland. And it really feels like as a monster movie, it's just trading, trading one monster for another, whereas The Sixth Sense is deconstructing monstrous and like no one is a monster we all just need help and yeah. we need to help each other i will say that the sixth sense is a comparatively less diverse cast it's mostly two white men and one white woman um, to be fair it's also but, it's yeah. just in general a very small cast and yeah. this is also m knight's first big film like i think he did his own short film before this and then it was the sixth sense and it was this huge thing man coming out strong at half it's really weird looking at the trajectory of M. Night Shyamalan's career because he starts off strong and then he's just kind of losing it there towards the end. You're saying the end is if he's stopping. I don't think he's going anywhere. He's going to keep making movies. That's the twist. <laughs> this was really fun. I really enjoyed this bracket. Mm -hmm. And I mean, who knows where we're going to wind up next year, but there have been some comments from people who are upset that we did not include this category or this movie or this type of monster. So I kind of want to do this bracket again next year around this time, but with, with a whole new monster set. Yeah. If we get organized soon enough, we may even have like audience vote on that. I'm sure Kaiju is going to wind up on there because we have got so many comments about like, where's the Kaiju movie? <laughs> wow. I'm so excited to talk about Colossal Starring and Hathaway as our Kaiju movie. <laughs> I'm sure that one did gangbusters in the theater. <laughs> but yeah. So stay tuned for uh, Monster Bracket 2, the Bride of uh, Monster Bracket <laughs> coming next year on iTunes, Facebook, Spotify, Twitter. I mean, I hope we're on iTunes by, <laughs> by next year. Yeah. I really need to get on that. Yeah. Also, coming up, not quite next week, because we will be releasing a day early to coincide with Halloween, we have our Halloween special. For which we will be taking a look at three of the best-known Universal Monster pictures that we didn't get around to watching for this bracket. Mostly because they're modern companion films didn't make it far enough into the bracket so we'll be doing a monster mash triple feature of 1931's dracula 1931's frankenstein and 1941's the wolfman after that we have at least one more spooky themed episode planned and then I think we're going to probably slow down for this time of year. Holidays are coming up and all that. We might try to have one or two more in, but I'm moving. So, like, I'm buying a house, so that might take up some of my priority. I know we talked about going to see Frozen 2 and talk about that. Yeah, that, that'll be pretty easy. And we might do some other sporadic episodes, but 
probably not going to see a whole lot of us till 2020 after this bracket finishes up. You'll have to stay tuned to find out what that bracket's going to be. So, once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.